Hello, it's Pete here, and welcome to EdTech Innovators. How's it going to feel to be an early career teacher? As good as this, perhaps? Yay! As scary as this, perhaps? Or even this. Or maybe even all of the above. Well, fear not, because this week's podcast is with David Gumbrell, who was seven years as a head teacher, now works in teacher education at Kingston University, and he also does consultancy on helping teachers with resilience. He'll also be talking about his latest book, which is about resilience, and it's entitled Spin, Time and Task Management in Teaching. Enjoy. <laughs> well, I think that spin is a useful idea. I think spin is a thing that uh, people know. And for me, uh, the book I'm writing or written um, is very much around ideas that people understand to begin with and then trying to draw that over into something that then can then help and support them um, in their everyday world. So lots of people talk to me about, oh, you mean plate spinning? Oh, we do that all of the time. And of course, they do do all of that time. That's part of the vernacular. That's part of how they explain the, the multitasking that we have in our daily lives. But actually, there's lots of different ways you can spin a plate. <laughs> and the book, the first chapter is trying to articulate the many different ways that you can, because you can spin one plate and do it well. And that's actually quite satisfying, isn't it? When you do that, you get a really good spin on it. So, you know, you can walk away from it and leave it if that plate obviously is, um, is a job or a task to do. But mm. what many of us do is just run along and spin as many plates as possible just to give each one a little nudge but that's actually fairly unsatisfactory um, for me certainly um, that we're constantly worried that all of them are going to drop <laughs> and we never give any one plate a spin uh, for long enough to keep it spinning for long and so um, that is not a good psychological state to be in and so the idea of the book is the um, is to reshape that idea of plate spinning to perhaps take concentrated effort on one plate, give it a good spin, and then move on to plate two, give that a good spin, and then off we go. So one thing at a time. One thing at a time, but do it well. So um, we get, we're very distractible as a human species. And when I was doing the research for the book, um, that became incredibly clear that we are very good at distracting ourselves and having things that distract us um, on our desktops, on our laptops, on our phones. And actually we're seeking that all of the time. Whereas actually when we want to be doing a decent plate spin, getting on with the task, the last thing we need is for our very uh, volatile brains to go off in a funny direction, to go off in a different direction. Mm -hmm. and that we've allowed this to encroach in modern life haven't we 
So we've allowed notifications to be on our phone. We've allowed um, the emails to come in as and when. And, and actually what we need to do is um, go dark. And uh, by that, this was a new term that came uh, that I discovered. Going dark is, an, is a term in the IT world where it is a known thing that you're not going to respond to emails. It's an accepted thing that you're focusing on your work and it's a trust thing that you will get back to them in time, but not just yet because we're focused on splitting that plate. Mm, fantastic. Now, one of the um, things that you uh, talked about was um, the distraction versus distraction. So I must, I must hold my hands up and say that um, as soon as I finish this conversation, I'm going to return to about seven windows that are open simultaneously uh, <laughs> that contain different tasks. Um, what am I thinking of? I think that, uh, well, I think you're falling into the trap of because we've got it, we use it. And uh, because technology is capable of, of holding seven tabs open um, and seven things on the spin, um, then we use it and we think that we're effective in order to do that. But what the difference between traction and distraction is that distractions are prevalent and all over the place. But actually, these are distractions from the task in hand, and therefore they are time delays of getting the job done, spinning one plate and spinning it well, which is the concept of traction. We get movement on that particular job, that particular task. So if I know I've got a big piece of writing to do, I block everything else out. I turn the notifications off. I hide my phone. I turn it off. I take the main phone out of the plug. No distraction. This is focused time for a very short space of time. Knowing that I'm going to allocate some uh, open another task time or manage the email time later on um, so that I can not worry about it. I can clear my mind of worry so that my brain is wholeheartedly focused on get that job done. <laughs> okay so let's um try to apply this to the context of being an, an ect of course an early career teacher and um your workload has increased um probably quite significantly and quite suddenly yeah. and it feels very overwhelming and people are making demands on you your head of departments the head your students are making demands on you it's coming from all directions uh, of course um so uh, I mean, what what would what kind of advice would you give to the to people who are feeling this sense of um, being overwhelmed because their workload has increased and everything is new and there's a sense of sort of hurly burly, as it were? Absolutely, I think the hurly burly, as it were, is the distractions that we need to get our we need to get rid of. So my my one tip would be clarity, clarity of target, clarity of priorities, clarity of issues that need addressing your priorities, not what are the all of the jobs that you could be doing, but what's the one job that you should be doing. And if we can have this clarity, then we can concentrate on that particular task, get it done, get that target hit, and then potentially move on to another target. But what's your target? So when I work with ECTs, I always say, what's your target? Oh, I don't know. Well, why don't you know? Because you should be working on it. Oh, it's something to do with, you know, as uh, planning. Well, what 
to do with planning. So we don't have this clarity about targets and therefore there's a vagueness, there's a blurriness. And this in within this blurriness and vagueness builds worry and concern because we're sort of hitting it, but we're not quite sure whether we're hitting it. If we know we're hitting it. There's a clarity between the dialogue, the conversation with mentors, a clarity of dialogue between the class teachers. So we all don't need to worry about it because we're focused. We've got a direction. We've got a trajectory. We know where we're heading. So my advice to an early career teacher would be clarity of targets and focus on those targets mm. until someone says, here's some more targets because you've done the previous targets. And then you move your focus over. Otherwise, it can become overwhelming when we don't have that clarity, when we don't have that shaping, where we have so many targets, we don't know which one to do first. Mm. So that's so the relationship with the mentor, really, to offer that clarity. Sorry, sir. It's okay. Yeah, and, and talking of, um, of, of, of clarity, so is it fair to say to, to achieve clarity, you need to think and to be able to think you need space and to do to have that space, you need to close doors. And that's something that I, th I think is worth picking up on um, that you mentioned in, in the book, the idea of, of closing doors and um, how many people don't actually, they just keep the doors open, don't they? So what, what would you say about how uh, you know, ECTs can uh, close doors so that you know, many more will open up as well? Yeah, I think doors are opening all of the time, but the, the, the concept of closing doors was something that I uh, read up about, um, and it was, a, it was a notion I quite like. It's allowing it, the, the job to be in a safe space so that we don't need to go down that route anymore. Um, it allows us to put closure on one particular thing. So, for example, when I was writing the chapter of the book, I would get it to a point where I was satisfied with it and I knew it was in a safe place. Therefore, I could close that door on it for the moment and I didn't need my focus to be distracted in that direction. I may well open that door again, but for the moment it's closed because my focus has to be on some other things now. I've done my moment with my chapter. I've now got to focus in on another subject in another area. So this idea of closing doors stops us from standing at the junction and going, crumbs, I could go this way, 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 I could go this way. What a waste of time mm. when we're standing there prevaricating over which option to take mm. and we could take this one or that one. Get on with doing the job. Yeah. <laughs> Again, as human beings, we take too long to make a decision and get started, get some traction on one particular job and give it a good spin. We stand there panicking that we've got so many plates to spin or so many doors to go through. Which one shall I? Which one, which one should I? Well, just get started. <laughs> just get moving, get over the inertia, get settled in, get rid of the distractions, get going. Yeah, and we know as, as authors, don't we, that um, you know the idea that if you close a door and return to it later on, it's, it's quite a, a helpful thing to do, isn't it? So, um, you know, you, 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 but we have to close that door and, and move on. Um, now, is this transferable to lesson planning? So, should we advise ECTs um, to actually you know, ensure that they planned in advance so that they can close the door on a, a lesson plan that's actually quite good? It's okay. It's nearly ready to go. But then let's return to it in a, in a couple of days' time and really, really knock it into shape. And that requires a great deal of planning in advance, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I think there's an emotional detachment that can come from leaving it for a bit and coming back to it. I think yeah. there's a lot of sense in certainly in the writing you and I do that when we've written it, we're very passionate about it and we're very involved in it and we can't really see the wood from the trees from it because we're so in it. Um, there's an attachment to it emotionally. But as human beings, we are emotional creatures. But if we can leave it for a couple of days and come back to it, we're more detached from it. We're less emotional about it. We're more rational about it. So when we're looking at lesson planning, we need to get it to a certain point. We need clarity. We need structure. We need signposting for the main learning and the main themes. But then we should come up with some activities that we can potentially do, but just let them sit in the background for a little bit and then come back to them and think, actually, yeah, that was a bit pretty, but it doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually hit the learning objective or we haven't really got stuff to do that practical. So let's just twist it and shape it in this way. Or the class has moved on a little bit. So actually we need to change it a little bit here, there and there. This is what I think we need to be doing, but we're emotionally involved with all of these things. So we can't see the wood from the trees. We're emotionally involved with it. So we don't aiming for clarity. Um, and I think that this can dilute lesson planning but also I think that we don't determine how long to write a lesson plan for <laughs> and therefore we do it for too long <laughs> to try and get it perfect. Yeah. Whereas actually we need a good edit, we need a good draft and then we need to close that door and leave it. Yeah, and I would, I would like to say that um, the majority of student teachers would not like to go back to those dark days in September, October, when they were spending about 300 hours on one lesson plan, you know, because they're perhaps deliberating over the PowerPoint um, <laughs> template or something or the fonts that they were using on certain slides. But uh, but absolutely right, they need to be able to do this. So um, now let's talk about um, noise versus quiet then. So you know, to, to, to focus to concentrate we need a sense of uh, quiet to sort of you know, quieten that noise so one, one of the many things that I like about talking to you David is that we there's this lovely sense of calm and quiet about the way that you, you talk um which is you know so important for, for, for education isn't it because there's, there's so much noise going on so give us an idea of um, the noise that needs to be calmed if we're going to thrive as an ECT. Oh, well, I, I, I think calmness is important. I think emotional regulation is important. For me, there's a connection between resilience and time management. There's a connection between well-being and, um, and looking after the tasks and getting those jobs done. There's, there's an element of resilience that is underpinning all of this thing. And I believe that this book is about if we are resilient, if we are managing our well-being, if we are proactive in doing that, then we are able to address the jobs that we've got to do, have the conversations that we need to have, keep calm when all of those around us are not, potentially. And so there's a lot about keeping the doubts in our mind quiet. And that, um, and that for me, there's a mental noise and there's a mental quiet. And when we've got a mental quiet, we've got other things, we've quietened other things down so that we can focus on the one job that we've got in hand. Again, it's a dis it's getting rid of the distractions. So my other jobs are in safe spaces right now. 
and I don't need to worry about them. So I can focus wholeheartedly on this conversation. And that to me is really important. And I prepared for that. I made sure this was going to be a safe space for me to have this conversation, to have this dialogue. Mm -hmm. So I was reducing that noise and that allows me to give a calmness and clarity to this conversation. And it's not de-emotionalizing it, it's actually really heightened emotion. Mm. Um, it's just focused emotional energy on the moment, the time, the now, this conversation, um, because it deserves that time. And similarly, just transferring this to the classroom, of course, the positive emotions that we have during the lesson, you know, enjoying the, the kids, enjoying, you know, the, the, um, bouncing off them and um, just enjoying what you get from them. The, that, that's an emotional experience, isn't it? And you can't really have that unless you're doing the things that you're describing, you know, quietening down everything else. I think you have to have the ability to go in um, wanting to enjoy it. And I see lots of student teachers and lots of experienced teachers very robotic in the teaching, depersonalizing, dehumanizing the experience. Yeah. I see a lot of teaching where it's a click through PowerPoint, but there's no emotion or there's no energy within that. So there's disconnection there. Um, and I think that can be potentially missing from a relatable experience within the classroom, an enjoyable experience within that classroom, an experience where the classroom is not calm because classroom shouldn't really be calm but there's a human calm that children feel safe in the environment and they're enjoying being in that space and so is the adult and I think when we can get to a sense of intellectual calm in that space mm. um, I think that's where teaching and learning can become wonderful mm. and brilliant but we're worried too much about getting on will we get onto slide 54 well Let's not worry about whether we get on slide 54. Let's teach live. And my, one of my lovely phrases that I like using is let's teach live. Let's teach to the children in this space at this time, in this moment. Let's not teach to the lesson that we thought we were going to teach yesterday. Let's not teach to the model of lessons that it could be if we were being observed. Let's not teach to last year's lesson plan because that was a different cohort of children. Let's teach these children in this moment about this top job subject. And that can bring a calmness too. And I, as a teenager, you, you, your life is pretty much chaotic all the time, isn't it? I mean, uh, some more than others, of, uh, of course, and at least you, the teacher, um, are a sense of um, calmness and, and, and you know, a sense of consistency. So, and they don't really care about slide 54, do they? But they prefer you to have fewer slides. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think calmness is a thing that you develop and you learn. Calmness comes from clarity again. It goes back to that word. What's the key learning that you're trying to teach? And what's the key way in which you're trying to teach it? Are you trying to engage the young people in their learning? Or are you just going to stand there and talk to them, talk at them for an hour and just survive it? But I think if we can engage children in the learning, if we can actually hit standard one, inspire and motivate children to want to learn, that can be such a powerful motivator for all. But we don't really concentrate on that. We do a big 
big shebang at the beginning and expect it to survive all the way through uh, the lesson or we just go oh well this is what we've got to get through sorry kids but this is what we've got to get through today almost apologetic that we've got to wade through treacle but let's get on with it um but i think it goes back to clarity clarity of how are you going to get this particular group of students in this particular moment to engage with the learning mm. if you can get that you can get calmness mm. and w without wishing to um be, be critical of, of teachers i mean what what do you think we should infer from a, a, a new teacher when they say we've got to get through this <laughs> you know what, what does that reveal about uh about their time management and um, what kind of state they're in. I think it's a lack of self-belief. I think it's a lack of uh, professional identity. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a false notion that actually just doing it, getting through the 54 slides of the PowerPoint mm. has actually succeeded in its goal. Mm. There's a difference between completing the lesson and engaging pupils in their learning and I think we do a lot of completing lessons we do a lot of filling books but what I'm not 100% sold on is that enough time is spent on engaging pupils in their own learning mm. learning done with them rather than at them mm. and this is not true in all in all situations or cases of course it isn't I've seen some fabulous teachers where they've really gone out their way to engage, to meet, uh, motivate and inspire. Mm. But I would say that in early career teaching, we, we're playing too safe. We're not taking risks, which I've written about on a previous occasion, but not for this one. <laughs> yeah. Now let's talk about the, the, the context of COVID. Now we're not expecting clear answers here, obviously, but we're just expecting a bit of um, awareness really and yeah. of what they could expect. So. Um, let, let's think about the pupils and what they, they've been through and um, how this might affect uh, what early career teachers are, are up against. So obviously, you know, let, let, let's bounce a few ideas around that they've been traumatised at worst. They've, they've certainly been very distracted and demotivated uh, at best. Um, everything has been disrupted at best. Um, so what, what sort of the things would, would we need to be mindful of as, as an early career teacher then in, in terms of what the kids have been through the last 15 months? I think that, the, the, well, to want, for, for want of a better metaphor, I think that we need to go back to the tap in the bucket. We can turn the tap on quicker and more water will come out of that tap. But if the bucket's in the wrong place, the water's not going to go into the bucket regardless of how quickly you turn the tap on. So when we talk about a catch-up curriculum, for most teachers that I've spoken to, that means turn the tap on faster. But actually, COVID has made us realise that actually, when we're not mentally in the right place, when we don't have mental quiet, when we don't mention the elephant in the room, which is some people have lost loved ones, some people have had a very, well, everyone has had a very strange time in the last 12 months. We don't recognise that. We're not putting the bucket in the right place. We're not putting the bucket under the tap. We don't need to turn the bucket on any harder. What we need to do uh, sort of turn the tap on any harder. We need to put the bucket in the right place. And by that, we need to recognise that we've all gone through a weird and strange time, and we're really grateful to be back. 
We've got to rebuild the classroom as a safe, loving, caring environment. We've got to rebuild the love of learning because some may not have had it. We've got to rebuild um, the connection. And all of this rebuilding needs to be done explicitly, coherently, in order to then have the bucket in the right place. And by May half term, we could then be able to turn the tap on a bit faster. We've got to go back to September the, September the 3rd of a new year when we've got to settle the class into a routine, into a moment. But I think to ignore the realities of COVID would be a mistake. So let's bounce back to the teachers then, because if, if they are going to be this um, constant presence, this calm presence, calming presence too, um, as you said before, they need to be proactive about their, uh, their well-being. Now, what about, um, I mean, that, that means so many different things to, to different people, doesn't it, being proactive about your well-being? So, for example, you, you might be one of these um, early career teachers who says, well, I'm all right, don't really need to look after my well-being, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. But um, that's slightly naive, isn't it? It is. It's not sustainable. Okay, it's not sustainable. So I'm okay, Jack, is an easy answer because they're fearful of someone criticising them. They're fearful of being seen to not be coping because actually we've got too many judges and judges that are also jury members that are trying to help but also have the, the casting vote in the grading of that student. So inevitably they're going to be cautious. Inevitably they're going to be... Um, they're going to say it's okay even when it's not okay but actually we need to acknowledge that we can't do this all the time we we're unable to keep it steady all of the time we we are our well-being our confidence levels are going to ebb and flow we're going to have to bounce back from certain situations some lessons aren't going to go well and we're going to have to find ourselves back again we're going to have to get our confidence back up again that's normal we're imperfect vulnerable human beings so let's recognize that let's stop trying to pretend that it's all okay let's try and admit that lots of it is okay but this bit's particularly gnarling me this this bit's particularly challenging for me this bit's a little bit harder for me and accept that that's okay and talk about that accept that that is there but in terms of proactivity on our well-being time spent before the moment is time well spent. Now, if we're going to run a marathon, after the event, we can go, oh, my legs ache. I don't know how that happened because we've done no training or we can train for that marathon. So we're less likely to get as badly achy legs at the end of it. Mm. And what I like is the idea that if we proactively manage our resilience, when we do need to bounce back, we don't need to bounce back from so far away. Mm. We've only got one more to catch up or two more to catch up, not six or seven to catch up. Yeah. So this idea of proactivity is about realising that we do need to stop to eat, to drink, to connect, to go for a walk. And that all of these things enable us to be sustainable mm. for the long term so that we're not uh, brilliant till October half term and handing down our notice by my half term. So let's be slightly conspiratorial, if we, if, 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 if you can forgive me for this. So what are the teachers who they will encounter who see it as a badge of honour not to to manage to eat your lunch? I've been, I've been too busy to eat today. I, I, I 
I, I didn't do anything over half term because I had so much marking to do. What, um, it's only natural to think, oh, right, well, I should be doing that too, shouldn't I? I think, I think it's not only natural to compare and contrast to others, uh, but I would also say that those that, those that are loudly saying that they're coping aren't coping as well as they say they're coping. Um, and it's a defence mechanism to say that they are very loudly to others that may not be. Because we're all vulnerable, imperfect human beings. And this job will take it out of you. And that's a known thing. And that's fine. That's part of what you're paid to do. Um, that's part of the love of the job in many ways. But we're also human beings that need to look after ourselves. And those who say they don't need to look after themselves are fooling themselves into believing that and trying to get others to fall into the same category. But I have to work on my well-being proactively, and so does everybody else. And those who don't fall by the wayside. Those who don't don't stay in teaching for 26 years and still love it. Sorry. You know, it's about a sustainable model of practice to make sure that the human being trying to be a teacher has looked after themselves to the point that they're able to be the best teacher that they can be. So really, the, this is not about survival, is it? It's about thriving, isn't it? It's, it's about loving the job. It's, it, it's about um, growing and, and um, really sort of making the, the most of every situation so that you feel good about yourself and the kids really love what you do. I think survival of the fittest is, is, is a notion that um, just gets you to the point where you're deeply resentful of the pupils or deeply resentful of the system or deeply resentful of education full stop. Mm. I, I want to get to is a point where teachers are enjoying teaching. I want to get to the point where early career teachers are having fun teaching, innovative teaching, creative teaching, motivational teaching, mm. not functional teaching, not uh, uniform teaching to ensure that they're the same as everybody else within their year group. There's an individuality about the teaching uh, rather than a, um, a comparability um, that makes sure that you know one class is exactly the same as the other. Because if we can have a human connection to it as a teacher, we'll be better teachers. And if we're better teachers, the kids get more out of it. If the kids get more out of it, the learning improves. There is a complete knock-on effect from one to the other to the other. Now, that's, I mean, really, we're talking about unleashing creativity, though, aren't we? I think as a, as a teacher and the feelings that you have the mental space and the confidence to be able to be creative in the classroom. And it's nice the way that, um, in, through your writing, you, you embrace metaphors and acronyms in, in a very playful way. Uh, do you want to talk about that? I, 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 mean, I, found, I found metaphor... Uh, uh, quite recently, actually, uh, through my writing, and I suddenly realised that actually metaphors can be quite useful because they can articulate very complicated things in very simplistic, seemingly simplistic ways. Mm. So on the surface, a metaphor can be quite simplistic. Mm. But actually, when you unpick it, what you get is some key themes, some key bridges between a big idea and an everyday idea. And that actually, in articulating the links between metaphor and the real life situation, brings a real clarity to the situation because you then start to realize that 
this big complicated thing comes down to three bridges between the metaphor and the reality. And actually, because we've had to explain it, because we've had to understand it, because we've had to construct that together through the writing, we both have an understanding of that. Mm. Right. <laughs> so we come out of it with a, a greater clarity, going back to that word again, of what the bridges between the metaphor are and the real world situation is. Mm. But also the beauty of using a metaphor is that the metaphor then can be passed on to someone else. Because you can say, oh, I saw this guy to, or read this, this guy's book today and he was talking about, insert here, metaphor, um, they go, oh, why is that? It's inquiry, it's curiosity. And through that inquiry and curiosity, it captures your attention. Mm. If it captures your attention, then you, you're willing to read on. <laughs> and if you're willing to read on, I've got you. And now you're learning about time and task management from a seemingly innocuous starting point. Mm, yeah, and you're co-constructing knowledge, which is, is a beautiful thing. What about um, much maligned acronyms? So are, you, are, you, are you a fan of acronyms? I know you've used them in your advising company. I do, I do like acronyms. I think acronyms can be quite useful to remember quite complicated things. Mm. Um, and there are a few in there um, that I think can be quite a, a useful structure for people to, um, to try and to remember um, where to put things in which order to put things. But as always, an acronym is only good as the person who created it um, and it works for them, but it might not work for somebody else. So I think it's important to note that um, an acronym needs to be created by the person themselves. But again, if we're crystallizing something into four key phrases for a four word, a four letter word, and each letter represents something, it goes back to a sharpness. It goes back to a, okay, this is a really important element of time and task management, as is this, as is this, as is this. Okay, I need to work on point one, because I'm not quite as good at that as I think I am or I want to be. There's a, that you can then drill down and work on that. So I think acronyms can be useful in that way. And certainly um, the one um, from Alcott was really useful in as much as he was the one that, was, that um, came up with the idea of putting things in a safe place. And for him, it was um, getting the distractions from here down so that you've got released space here. And I really went with that because I tried it and it worked for me. So you know, get the ideas down on a notebook so it, it's in a safe place. I know where the notebook is. I don't need to worry about where it is. It's there, it's safe. And that was a magical moment for me and uh, one of the transformative moments of the reading that I did in order to get this book out there in the big wide world. Mm. And it's partly about breaking down problems into smaller ones too, isn't it? Into, into more logical steps that you, you must take. It's logical steps, it's clarity of thinking, Logical steps are really important because it starts to get us to a sequence and that can be getting us to a habit, a good habit. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that 
habitualized actions then become part and parcel of who we are and what we do. Mm. So the awkwardness of it becomes the normality of it. My worry is that in many schools, the abnormal has encroached by chance and we've allowed it to gradually encroach. So not having lunch at lunchtime gradually encroaches until it's acceptable. Um, and working till six o'clock in the evening at school becomes socially acceptable over time. And we don't challenge it because it goes gradually and captures us up. But I think we need to re-establish some good habits to look after ourselves more than we do. Yeah, and, and obviously, um, without being too uh, political, there is a danger, isn't there, that the, the government's view of how kids are going to catch up is by being taught more, like, like hammering a, a nail harder. There's a danger that that might be harmful. Yeah, I mean, I th we can teach more, but that goes back to, are we teaching them in a way that they're absorbing that? Because teaching them is one thing, but actually taking that idea, that concept, that thought, that knowledge, that skill in and on is more than just teaching it. Yeah. <laughs> We've got to learn it. And so I, I find it almost hilarious that we're talking a lot about teach more and get through more and add more time in as if these are the ingredients that make it stick. These are not the ingredients that make learning go in. The ingredients that make learning go in are um, motivating, self-motivated learning. It's about creativity, it's about innovation, it's about thinking outside the box. It's about engaging pupils in their learning, not just getting them to sit down, be quiet and listen. It's about sit down, okay, this is what I want us to do, let's get on and do it, let's all engage with it. That is how learning happens, that's how we're going to catch up. But I fear that not many schools are going to follow that model. Excellent. Well, it's all going to be great, isn't it? Because you'll be paid, you'll have your own tutor group, maybe, you'll have your own classroom to work in, hopefully. Um, you'll feel a lot more confident, you'll be part of the furniture. Anything else to, uh, any other messages of inspiration to pass on to these uh, early career teachers? I think that absolutely you have more autonomy than you think, and you have more, you have more flexibility than you think. And I want, I want early career teachers to really grasp hold of that, not to be scared of the freedom, but to embrace that freedom, to allow creativity to come through and allow them to come through their professional identity to be present and real in the classroom, not to be the cookie cutter teacher that's just the same as everybody else, but what makes them quintessentially them in the classroom, what makes them unique in the classroom and what makes them uh, sing, in inverted commas, in the classroom. And if they can find that, they're going to be a happy teacher. If they don't find that, they're just going to become a run-of-the-mill okayness or potentially a disenfranchised down the line lever. So we really got to establish good routines and habits early on. Well, a pleasure as always, David. And um, I really, really appreciate your time. It's obviously a very busy uh, few weeks for you um, in light of the, the book uh, being uh, officially published, officially available tomorrow as, as, as we speak. So um, 
thanks a lot. And um, on a personal note, are you, are you feeling very excited about this? I've, absolutely. I'm always excited about, about new things coming out. I'm always excited about trying to offer up things to help things to support you know I've been in the game for a long time now I know how it works I know what matters I know how um, how I want it to play out so any support I can offer to early career teachers or teachers in general um, is exciting for me yeah because I really think that, that this is new this is different this is innovative this is outside the box but essentially it's useful stuff that's geared to help teachers teach better and be more contented in this wonderful profession which we both work in fantastic so it's it's been such a good place so thank you so much and um i'll speak to you again soon you know i will pleasure thanks david a lot for listening next time we'll be talking about teaching abroad the joys and the challenges see you later